Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. In August 1944, Fred Bailey jumped out of a perfectly good airplane and parachuted into Nazi-occupied France, landing in a disused brickyard. Growing up, he had been a sickly child with a heart condition, which led his family to move out of London for his health. But in 1941, at age 18, he had volunteered for the British Army, joined the Royal Armoured Corps as a wireless operator, and served in the Desert Army. Bored the fight for North Africa was over, he made the classic military mistake of volunteering for special duties, and soon found himself in the Special Operations Executive assigned to be a radio officer in a Jedburg team groups of three soldiers designed to jump into France and support the French resistance in conjunction with the Allied invasion. Fred Bailey died on January 29, 2023, at age 99, probably the last veteran of the Jedburg teams living in Britain. When I read his obituary, it seemed to me a very good time to have Ben Jones back on the podcast. Ben Jones is the state historian of South Dakota and director of the South Dakota State Historical Society, and he appeared in episode 290 to talk about both of those jobs. But he is also a retired Air Force officer, a historian of the Second World War, and author of Eisenhower's Guerrillas, the Jedbergs, the Maquis, and the Liberation of France, which is the subject of our conversation today. Ben, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Well, thank you. And congratulations on 290 plus shows. (laughs) Let's begin with Eisenhower's dilemma in the spring of 1944. He's what he's in January, as late as January, December 43, he's become Supreme Allied Commander, head of the invasion, head of the invasion of Europe. And he's chain smoking a lot and staring across the English Channel. And he's thinking about how this is going to work. And he's got a problem. What is it? Many problems to solve. And you think about the complexities of taking hundreds of thousands of men in combat gear across the channel and uh, fulfilling his orders, which were enter the continent of Europe and defeat the German forces, I think is a paraphrase of, of his orders by the Allied commanders. And he has, so he has many problems to solve about that invasion plan, operational level problems about tonnage of shipping and getting all the troops across the Atlantic from the United States and training them up and communicating with them and organizing air, land, and sea and so forth. But one of his other problems is what is the resistance inside of France going to do and how can he get them lashed into his plan? This is a very good question to have, and he begins working on that almost immediately. In fact, before he leaves the Mediterranean, he has a meeting with the man who can help him most with that, and that's Charles de Gaulle. They have a quick conversation. De Gaulle, as a general, appreciates Eisenhower's task and tells him in very clear words, I, you know, I'm supporting you 100% on, on your, your task at hand, while he's unaware of many things and will remain unaware of the details of the invasion until hours before it happens. The biggest dilemma that Eisenhower has about this situation is not de Gaulle, which is what many Americans assume, and it's what I assumed when I started this research into this question was, but his dilemma really is named Franklin Delano Roosevelt, because Roosevelt's undying view that de Gaulle was unworkable, that de Gaulle's efforts were counter to American interests, and that Eisenhower is forbidden from working with de Gaulle. And then, because de Gaulle is the political head of the provisional government of France, according to them, de Gaulle's, or Eisenhower is really in a dilemma. He's, he's between this political boss of his, who's supported by Churchill, President Roosevelt and Churchill have kind of forestalled his ability to work directly with the French. And the French having a supreme political agenda in their war, which is their sovereignty, to reachieve their sovereignty as a nation, they will only be dealt with as a sovereign nation, which is exactly how Roosevelt does not wish to deal with the provisional government of France. So there's that conundrum that begins to formulate, I think, in Eisenhower's mind by late January, early February of 
44, and it persists up until after the invasion, where he finally gets a clearance to go ahead. So this book is not really about the invasion of France or commandos or guerrillas or Jedbergs. It's really about let me tell you what your book is really about. <laughs> it's really about the mistaken idea that we can separate military history from political history or any other kind of history. Right. And we, and we can't also separate military affairs from politics. Right. And this, right. the stuff that you always hear, I mean, I've, I've ranted about this before probably, about Americans love to talk about political generals because they've watched Patton too many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. the, greatest America, the greatest generals of any republic have an understanding of politics at its most basic and essential level. And Eisenhower is being asked to make bricks, not just without straw, but almost without clay. Because he's supposed to conduct military affairs in France while pretending there there is no such thing as a French polity or French politics or French political aspirations, which is to ultimately is to say the French don't really want to be French or we don't care how the French want to be French. Right. It is Roosevelt and to some degree Churchill, although he later comes around, I think by April, he senses the crisis that's really formulating. Yeah, as Clausewitz taught us, right, there's no separation between politics and war. When I hear somebody on the news say this foreign policy issue cannot be solved by a military solution, there's no military solution for, you know, fill in the blank, Ukraine or Afghanistan or whatever crisis we might have had in the last 20 years. I've often heard, well, since Bosnia, I've heard that. There's no military solution to this. I think, kind of. It depends on your political, it depends on what is your political aim. And you have to, you may have to demonstrate your willingness to use a military tool in order to convince the other side that you're serious in achieving your aims. So either as a deterrent or in full-throated use of, you know. And when I hear civilians or military people say, let's just keep the politicians out of this, then you get very nervous, not simply because of the questions of civilian control in a republic. Mm -hmm. Let's put that to one side. That doesn't understand the basic 101 Clausewitz about political objectives. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Eisenhower has to... You know, he's sitting there dealing with all of this, and he's operating as if he's going to get permission. He's inherited a great deal of machinery, special operations machinery from the British thinking about this, a significant amount of thinking and planning and wargaming about how they would do this. And so when he arrives in England, he inherits all of this. He also had from the American Office of Strategic Services, led by Bill Donovan, often called Wild Bill Donovan, for very good reason. He inherited, when he invaded North Africa, a network of OSS capacity that proved to be helpful for him in the in the messy politics of North Africa. And he doesn't want to repeat those messy politics again. The first so you're right, when you when you talk about the book, what the book being about, my my leading question was because there were there were things out about the Jedbergs when I started this, and I knew I had some competition as I kind of meandered to a finish of this book over a period of several years, there were other people talking about the Jedburg teams in particular. They were writing books kind of like, you know, the guns of Navarone kind of parachute in and blow up a bridge, that kind of stuff. My question then as a, as a military professional and thinking about the strategy of this, my question was, so what did it do? What was the impact on the war? And to understand that, I immediately had to go to the political stuff. And as you say, the, Je- the Jedbergs then provide you a vehicle to look at the where all the various scenes of the war, of war, political, military, social, cultural, they overlap. Diplomatic. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And they overlap. And this is the weird part too, at the level of each team. Because yes. so, the way the teams are composed. So, you, so you, could you explain, first of all, what's a Jedberg? And sure. how are the team? Let's go from the micro to the macro. 
Okay. Uh, very briefly, just to define some terms. This is because it gets us confusing. Yeah. It's well, when you throw in the French resistance, it's confusing as medieval Italy, which is kind of a compliment. <laughs> uh, so well, what's maybe a, not that bad, but <laughs> no, don't sell yourself yeah. short. Let's let's go. So what's a Jedberg, and then what do they sure. fit into special operations executive? Blah 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 blah. Right. So in a, in a war game, the British run in 1942, and in, in anticipation of invading, they come to the conclusion that they need a liaison element collaborating with the resistance behind the lines and radioing, communicating what's going on behind the lines and directing those resistance forces of whatever country, but they're primarily concerned with France, what to do. They want to tell them, hey, go here and blow up this bridge, but don't go there or blow up that bridge and don't do any activity in this part. We're going to bomb it tomorrow, this kind of tactical level stuff. And so they they think about, well, what, how big should that team be? Should it be 16 guys? Should it be two guys? What, who should be on it? And so forth. And they think, well, we ought to have a person who speaks the language, if not all all of them, at least one of them. Anyway, to make a long story short, they, they devolved down to two officers and a radio who would be on this team. And then they, as they do more thinking about it and exercising it, they realize you can't have your you know school French. You can't be you know Cambridge French. It has to be colloquial French. You need a native speaker on the team. And so the British decide for language reasons to go after French officers who can be on their team. The British also decide that they don't have enough men or equipment to, or air support, air transport to make all this happen at the level across the nation of France that they would need to have happen. So they reach out to the Americans. And so for these two reasons, which are very different, kind of logistical capacity reasons to the United States, and for language speaking to the French, they reach out to the other these other nations. And that, that all makes, you know, you can sit in a staff room in a London OE office and kind of think all that through. But you, the enormity of that decision was profound because what that does is when you get the Americans, you get you get all that stuff. You also get, you know, a, a rising world power that by the end of the war is going to be telling you, Britain, to disable your empire, which was not what those st- staff planners in the SOE were thinking when they, well, let's get the Americans on board. You know, When they asked the French to join on, which by January of 44 is kind of when they formally make that request, January, February 44, then they get all the French politics of the resistance, which they had not been banking on, nor did they fully appreciate what that meant. So they, they get all the goodies, you know, they get the French speaker, which is great. And they get all the capacity, which are the B-24s are able to drop hundreds of these teams or, or tens of these teams into France. They're able to get the parachutes, the ammunition, all these weapons and guns and so forth, the codes. But They also get uh, the political headaches of, of what FDR might want to do to their empire later. So briefly, what's the SOE? And oh, what's what makes sure. a different? What makes a difference from the SIS or MI six? Sure, the S, the Winston Churchill f- begins the special operations executive in order to conduct sabotage in occupied areas by the Germans uh, or against the Germans. The SIS is an intelligence organization, so the SOE's mission is to go up, go in, and blow things up, really cause chaos and harass and consternation and so forth. And he does this at a time when the British have very few tools at their disposal in 1940, 39 and 40. The intelligence apparatus of the British, which is composed of a domestic intelligence and overseas intelligence, and that was pretty well mature because of British imperial powers around the, around the world, as well as fighting in Ireland and so forth. I was very nervous and jealous of the SOE's existence. And so, and Eisenhower, I'm sorry, Churchill, you know, probably could have expected that there would be a lot of bureaucratic jealousy, which there was, and infighting, which there was. But he, SOE, was kind of his baby. So we'll get to we'll get to that very interesting sort of this Churchillian tradition of sort of obsession with irregular warfare. Uh, yeah. But this is a secret organization, and it's remarkable yes. when you talk about how long people with the Jedburgs kept their secrets. So I'm always curious about historians mm-hmm. of such activities. How do you do a history where your subjects are all, I mean, 
they live very compartmentalized lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was just even Fred Bailey, who seems like a nice chap, went back to work at the Colne Valley Water Company after right. his exciting <laughs> life was over at the age of right. 22. Right. He went back to work for the water company and worked on the Portsmouth Water Company as their secretary to the board. And that was, I yeah. suspect that he had a very, that that sort of commando lifestyle that he had had in 44 and 45, that was probably kept locked away from even his family. Right. Locked away. It's astonishing that uh, how well they kept their secrets. Well, most of them. There were some Americans and one or two French that in the 40s and 50s wrote books that did pretty well. One of them, the, one of the first ones is by Stuart Alsop, who we may talk about more about later. He becomes a journalist and and he, along with another OSS veteran, write a war or write a book about kind of a fictional Jedburgh team, but it mirrors much of what happened to Stuart Alsop's experiences in France. It's called Sub Rosa. Another gentleman writes a book called No Bridges Blown, which was one of the first books I came across as I started in this research. And the title is excellent because it's not Guns of Navarone where you're going in and blowing up a bridge and winning the war. It's going in and suffering futility after futility after futility because of politics or poor logistics or any number of reasons that, that you know, you just can't overcome without tremendous resolution to, 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 to get it done. So, so yeah, his book is, was, was kind of jarring to me and the fact that he, he went in and blew up bridges, but he didn't blow up any bridges. And his book is still still wildly entertaining. In fact, Notre Dame Press re-released it, I think, three years ago, and they, they asked me to write the foreword to it. And it's a great book on kind of, and it's written in a very Hemingway-esque style. You can tell the, the author had read Hemingway, and particularly the For Whom the, uh, Bell, for tolls, whom the Bell Tolls. Which is about yeah, blowing I mean, a bridge, come think of it. Right, which is about blowing up a bridge. So he is he is echoing for whom the bell tolls throughout that book. It's really quite amazing. How, did you? I mean, you know, people like Fred Bailey are. He was pretty young when he was there, but it's always amazing how young everyone was in, in the Second oh, World yeah. War. My mom was just telling me about a B seventeen pilot who was twenty one, which I think was even young for by the standards of B seventeen pilots. But probably an old man, an old B seventeen pilot was twenty six. Yeah. So they're all young. Mm-hmm. You must have been contacting them at the end of their life when they must have felt some ability to talk or were there still some that kind of were, you had to really drag it out of them or they even refused? I, well, they would, would refuse by not answering my letters. This was in an age, email was just kind of, I was getting into this in the late nineties and many, I had email, but they did not. And so I would have to hunt down their address. There was a gentleman who had organized their reunions and I happened upon him he lived in South Carolina, and uh, I'd call Joe up and I'd say, "Hey, do you have so and so's address?" And he's, "Oh, yeah, sure." And then he would, he would kind of tell me what he knew last about that particular guy. There was one guy I remember calling up. He said he's in a nursing home. I don't think he's doing very good. You need to talk to him now. You know. So I called. He answered. All I heard was some murmuring, and then a, I think a nurse came in and hung up the phone. He was he he was on the, the major on Team Hugh or Team Ian. I'm sorry. So that was that was not, you know, a good sign of what was happening. But yeah, that there were folks. Oh, and then I found one who lived in Leavenworth, Kansas, and he had been a radio man on one of the team Novocaine, team Novocaine. Bill Thompson was his name. So I just drove down from Lincoln where I was at the time, sat in his living room for two, three hours. We had a wonderful chat. He gave me access to all his photographs. He'd also served in China. And so he had a wide variety of experiences and he had a grin on his face the entire conversation. He showed me a photograph that he had had on his camera of a Japanese soldier standing at attention. Clearly not one taken during combat, you know. And I said, what is this photograph of? And he said, oh, that was the guy who camera I took. Oh, so he had killed this Japanese soldier in combat liberated his camera, used it to take his own photographs, and when the film ran out, he got the film developed, and the first photograph on that film was of the soldier who he had shot in combat. And I drove home that, that night, so this would have been in 99, back to, back to Lincoln, and I remember telling my dad about that, thinking, I don't know if I can... <laughs> I don't know what I think about that. 
you know, he, and he has that, if I had done that, I mean, I could see, I could see defending myself and getting involved in combat and, and shooting someone. I could see taking their, I could see myself perhaps taking their equipment. I could see myself then developing the film later, but I couldn't see myself holding onto that picture for decades, but he did. He just put that in his photo album like the rest of the photos. And I remember my dad saying, well, I'm glad that, that I'm glad you're upset about that, which that was, that conversation really started me thinking about the morality of unconventional warfare, which is a path I've, I've long thought about is what is the morality of what would drive a man to, or a woman, there were lots of women involved in this particular event, what would drive drive a man or woman in France in the resistance to go into the resistance and then to think that it was okay for them to use a deadly force against another human being, right? What's, what's the conditions by which you would be compelled to approve of that and to participate in that? And so that type of stuff I deal with in the book as well. What's the morality of insurgency and and guerrilla warfare. And the British have a wide variety of views about that, but Churchill had no, when it was the only tool at hand, he was all for it. So other than Churchill's, well, other than Churchill's experiences, I suspect a remarkable number of Jedbergs, both British and American, and maybe French too, had read The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Yes. And were very influenced by T.E. Lawrence. and. Uh Certainly, SOE practice was very influenced by Lawrence. And there's a very interesting way that you, you, you bring out in which the ultimate fate of what Lawrence had been fighting for in the desert, the failure of the Arabs to develop a state, is really related to French political fears and hopes at the same time. So could you, could you tease out that sort of the multivalent, the, the, the lessons uh-huh. of Lawrence, that they're the, both the military, but also the political lesson, lessons of Lawrence's experience in the desert. Right. Well, yeah, if you read Seven Pillars of Wisdom or anything Lawrence read, wrote about guerrilla warfare and his experiences in particular, the, you're left with this kind of supreme disappointment in how it pans out. You know, and I think the, the end of the movie, Lawrence of Arabia, is very compelling. You know, I... I've used that in classes many times to talk about what's going on here. If you think about the scene, the end of Lawrence of Arabia, where, where Lawrence is in the room, Jack Hawkins, who plays the British general, is there. Alec Guinness, who plays the Arab king, is there. And uh, who's the gentleman who Claude Rains, playing Claude the British, Rains, playing yeah, the British so diplomat. These giants of mid twentieth century acting, right, are all in this scene. It's it's really fantastic, fantastic scene, and. And they're, they're going to do the diplomacy that will draw the lines of the modern Middle East. The, I mean, it's, it's not really happening that way, but that's the, the director is forcing the audience or inviting the audience to think about what's occurring and how it's occurring. And they politely ask Lawrence to leave the room while they, as the Alec Guinness character uh, rightly says, you know, your, your tactical and operational and military abilities are no longer needed. You've put us in this great position. Had to shut the door. Go ahead. Sure. You, you've put us in this great position to where the virtues of young men, as he says, the virtues of young men are courage and hope for the future. And your courage and hope for the future has propelled all of us to this, this moment. And this is an amazing moment, and we thank you for that. But now is the time for the, the virtues of old men to prevail in the diplomacy. And the virtues of old men are mistrust and caution. <laughs> and so now the mistrust and caution comes, comes to the fore. They figure out how to run Damascus with, as the Claude Rains character says, well, I think we're going to have a British waterworks with an Arab flag on the top of it, right? We're going to have that sovereignty of the Arabs while the, the anatomy of it is maintained by the skill and know-how of British engineers and British experts who know how to run a water plant. 
and you got to run the water plant or people will not have water and they'll die. So, and, and so both of them kind of haggle about this. And I think that's a, it's a wonderful distillation of, of Lawrence's lessons from the first world war is political sovereignty is upstream of the military intent. And if you get the military intent right, but the political sovereignty and the political questions wrong, it won't matter. And the French understand this, certainly. And I think the British also come around to it, I think, as the, as the D-Day, as Overlord is approaching within months away. At, in, in Churchill's last message to Roosevelt, which I put in the book, he says, you know, it's going to be awful hard to occupy France without the French. Which is, it's kind of, you get to a certain point in the book, you realize, oh my God, it's like Roosevelt's plan is to deal with France as if the French aren't actually there. Right. And, well, as if their sovereignty doesn't exist until they can have a free and open popular yeah. election. So uh, all yeah. these Jedbergs are running around, they're wanting to be Thomas Edward Lawrence, and de Gaulle is bound and determined that he won't be, I think it's Faisal. He won't be, he won't be the elegant, he won't be abandoned, you know, and his political right. sovereignty be, mm-hmm. be questioned. Right. Um, let's talk about the OSS briefly. You, you talked about how they were created by Wild Bill Donovan. How does Wild Bill get that name? I mean, he gets, it's the Medal of Honor. I mean, all Medal of Honors, yeah. are, you, most everyone gets the Medal of Honor the hard way. I think yeah. his way was pretty hard. His way was pretty hard. Yeah. Um, and then there was post-war politics and bureaucratic delay. And then all of a sudden, I think it, it finally comes to him in 1924, 25, as he's kind of starting his, it helps him launch his, his political career, that notoriety and so forth. But mm-hmm. yeah, he, he's in the lines with, he's a, I think he's the deputy commander of a, of a battalion in the trenches in the First World War. He gets orders to go do something. The reality that he's seeing during that that operation is not congruent with the intent of his orders, and he disobeys his orders. In other words, he acts as a good, well-meaning American officer has been trained to act. And, well, some are trained that way, I guess. He sees that this is futile, what they're, what I've been ordered to do, and I'm going to disobey in orders in order to save my unit from being totally destroyed. That's pretty risky. After the operation is over, he takes some heat from other folks as well, but there is a great deal of recognition that what he did, which by the way, he's wounded himself and he keeps barking orders while he's being hauled off the battlefield in a stretcher, saves his, saves his unit. And for that action, he's, he's awarded the, the Medal of Honor. And I think that's what he, he embodied to his men of the OSS. He said, we're, we're going to send you places. You're not going to have the ability to communicate with higher headquarters. So I need you to be able to take action on your own. And they loved him for that. I mean, he recruited the type of people who were take charge initiative, super smart, and and loved the fact that the boss gave them the ability to make the decisions that they needed to make for being on the scene that they were in and their location. We should say that, I mean, he's, he's, I think, Buffalo Irish, but somehow ends up being a Republican, which is rare for an Irishman at the time. And, yeah, at the time, it probably wasn't and, and, and yeah. then goes on to be a real white shoe, founded a, a big law firm and made a lot of money defending yes. business against antitrust suits from the government. Yes. Yet nonetheless, despite that, there's several ticks against him. He's still friends with Franklin Roosevelt because they went to Columbia Law together. And uh, and and Roosevelt, and one of his great gifts, other along with his preternational political antennae, yeah. are his ability to find the right person to put in the right job. And that's true. And and yeah. so he has Donovan in this job and mm-hmm. naturally making everyone, not least George Marshall, really offended because here you've got right. a guy who's a major general in the army. He's got right. he's got they've got military ranks in the OSS, which it's officially in the war department, I think, but it really reports directly to the commander in chief. And so yes. everyone everyone hates the OSS. MacArthur won't let it in his theater. Right. But he's not the only theater commander. There's only one theater commander that likes the OSS, mm-hmm. and that's Dwight David Eisenhower. Right, right. Why? He saw what they did for him in North Africa. Okay. And the decision to bring the OSS into the Jedburgh planning was done before Eisenhower became commander. Mm-hmm. So there's a fair amount of before 
Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Forces comes into being, there's kind of a planning staff called the Cossack, the Chiefs of Staff of the Allied Command. And they're essentially, they're writing the plan for what will become Overlord. And so there's a lot of decisions that Eisenhower inherits. And that's kind of one of them is that we're going to have these tripartite teams. And so Eisenhower comes into the theater. This is kind of already settled to some degree for him. Back to the Jedbergs. You really underlined the point that unlike a lot of unconventional warfare since World War II, Jedbergs are meant to work in conjunction with other military formations. I think I I think I wrote yes. in I think I wrote in my book. Oh look, they invented hybrid warfare. Who knew? Which is the, exactly the, the, the buzzword <laughs> of late. The military gets these buzzwords in their head, and then yeah. it's always surprised to find that that people have been doing it for three hundred years, right. or at least. So right. this is this is using all the military means at your disposal as a in a combined. It's not just combined arms. It's all it's combined means. You combined know? means. That's yeah. an excellent term. There's a new buzzword, combined right. means. I, thank you. <laughs> I, 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 I can die happy. Yeah. Well, I think they're, to take the T.E. Lawrence, the lessons learned from T.E. Lawrence down to the operational level, get it out of the strategic politics and down to the operational level, what's changed from the 19-teens and early 20s to the 1940s is we have aircraft and we have secure communications that T.E. Lawrence didn't have. Once he was kind of out there with his groups of Arabs, attempting to sort out what target was worthy, he couldn't he couldn't phone that back in and get kind of get approval or he couldn't get a direction from where the 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 cooperation between the conventional and the unconventional didn't exist when Lawrence is operating at any kind of real time level. But twenty five years later, technology has made that something that's achievable. And so when the British planners are thinking about this, they're inspired by Lawrence. They're recognizing they've got new technology that helps them solve a problem that Lawrence suffered from and that they can do this kind of real-time linkage. At least they hope it'll be real-time. Of course, there's, you know, the enemy gets a vote and so does the weather and so all these other things cause a lot of massive confusion. So they're, they're sending over, what, 1,500 tons of munitions, I believe, in yeah. supplies, yeah. dropping out of B-24 Liberators mostly into France. The expectation is that there'll be eventually, there'll be 100,000 Maquis under arms, French resistance members under yeah, arms it, after the invasion begins. It, it turns out to be like 120,000, I think, by the time it's all counted. Yeah. Eisenhower wanted a division. Eisenhower hoped to have like a division of French resistance, not as such like a division might present right. itself in our minds, but a division's worth of men armed by the end of 1944. That was kind of a planning goal. And that's more or less what he gets. He, more than that, He's right? also, what's that? More than that. I mean. More, yeah. It, it depends on what armed means, but yeah, but right. he does have, it, in October, the the French government, as de Gaulle says, okay, we're going to take all these, these teenagers and young men who've got guns and ammo, and we're going to put them in uniforms, and we're going to put them into proper units, and we're going to participate in the invasion of Germany. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to regularize these guys who've been guerrillas. It's a monumental undertaking, but he tries to do that in order to kind of, you know, put a line capacity with political objectives. And also it gives the great outward and inward symbol that France is back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you've got a proper army. And this is what they refer, they don't refer to it as resistance. They refer to not as the resistance, but the army of the interior. Is that what that be? Right. The free French army of the interior, because yeah. there was the, the exterior forces of which de Gaulle was, was a part, but now he's... He's got the guys who are leading the interior forces who keep getting arrested. I mean, he keeps sending in people who they get arrested. But yeah. he's also got, I think we've already mentioned, Major General is a Koenig, who yes. is an Asian, I guess, from the name. Yeah. And he's based in London. This is And this is kind of the, the brilliance of the whole setup. He's mm-hmm. now in command of the Army of the Interior from London, right? That's, right. that's how that works. He, right. If you think, if you look at a organizational chart of Shafe at the time, you see... There's a air component commander that works for Eisenhower. There's a land forces component commander. There's a naval component commander. But all of these charts don't have the very classified special operations component commander, which was, for France anyway, it was General Koenig. Mm-hmm. And Eisenhower sees this as a necessary command 
component of the entire plan in order to reach the French resistance, you needed to have a French general in charge. And he, he asked de Gaulle for who would, he would like to appoint to this position. And de Gaulle says, well, Koenig, I'd like to have them. And when the resistance through their secret messages and being told this by other spies and so forth in France, find out that Koenig is going to be their general. They're elated with this because Koenig was the first French general to defeat a German force in open combat in the Second World War. He's got tons of credibility. He had never been a collaborator, never been affiliated with Pétain's government. He's a resistor from the first moment, just like de Gaulle is. And so that gives him the political credibility. And he has the military credibility with the resistance to know that this guy's, you know, he's he knows what he's doing. He was a winner. And we're we can be confident in his decisions and so forth. It's really interesting how well Eisenhower and de Gaulle work together compared to everybody else. But that's just, I mean, <laughs> I mean because Eisenhower gives de Gaulle the space to appoint Koenig. I mean, he's the right, uh-huh. the absolute right person to appoint. He puts right. him in, folds him in the organization. It's just, and the Eisenhower, the entire, when he's doing that, right. he's really off the reservation a little bit. He is off the reservation, right. Yeah. And, and I came to realize that in my visit to the Eisenhower Library, looking through, I was reading the message traffic in the days leading up to Overlord. And I was looking for all the messages to see if any messages would mention the Jedbergs. And what I found was the day before D-Day, I think on the 4th of June, it's been delayed for weather. He And he writes a message to General Marshall. So he's telling his boss back home, what's going on? It's a long message, but he spends the first maybe two or three sentences basically saying, you know, all of my military capacity, I'm set. And then he goes on for two or three paragraphs about this political problem with the French. And you need to talk to the president about this. So he's he's pleading with Marshall. And when I read that message for the first time, I thought, yeah, that de Gaulle, man, he's a real problem. And then I read it again a few months later, and I realized he's not complaining about de Gaulle. He's complaining about Roosevelt. And I had to reorient all of my thinking about the whole problem that he faced. And that's why the first half of the book is all the politics, and the latter half of the book is the operations that pan out due to the politics. Well, if people are upset with French politics, they just go find another podcast. But let's keep on. Let's do a little bit. <laughs> yeah. what, what, let's just do a little bit more. Let's do, start giving a little taste of the operation stuff. Sure. Jedbergs, three men, all mm-hmm. with really incredible requirements. It's like putting together a team of, in some ways I was thinking about it, putting together a team of three Olympic athletes because yes. r- these radio operators aren't just radio operators. You know, you complain about, some of you complain about the audio quality of this podcast. <laughs> Imagine trying to pick up Morse code from across the, you know, English channel with a, a right. ungainly radio dry tubes that fits in a suitcase. Yeah. Good luck right, with that. Right. So well, right. that alone is with the Gestapo after you. With the Gestapo after you, you have to transmit yeah. in two minutes, otherwise the radio direction trucks will find you. So yep. that those are just the radio operators. Then you got to right. find the idiomatic French. Um, yes. it's, it's funny what the OSS does. Naturally, they go to New Orleans. I don't know if that fits. I don't know if that's yeah, yeah. idiomatic French by the French standards. But well, you it's know. problematic. Yeah. yeah. And then it's of course there's parts of there's parts of France that don't speak French. Right. And so there are non-local French officers parachute into you know parts of Brittany and so forth, and the only people they can really talk to are the French teachers, yeah. who have a proper French education of proper French, yeah. and that's why a lot of these women teachers in the resistance, or a lot in Brittany in particular, a lot of female teachers wind up being very useful conduits for running things around Brittany because they can communicate with the commandos that they're in the haystack, you know, that's hiding. So what's that? So because what's, no one else could. What does it require to be a Jedberg? You've already been trained to be an SOE or OSS operative, right. which is, which is pretty intense. So yeah. now th- this is like your postgraduate training. What, what right. what's required? Well, you need to be parachute qualified and you need to have some kind of working knowledge of French. So when, when the British thought, well, we'll just get the Americans to join in. Well, even the United States found it difficult to find French-speaking, parachute-qualified volunteers willing to volunteer for something that they weren't told what it would be. You got to find 50 of them out of 2 million people. How hard can it be? I mean, well, it, it, yeah. it turns and out to be hard. It turns out to be hard. And the French also. I mean, they, of course, speak French, but they have to volunteer to do this and finding it. And the requirement for the French were higher because there would be a French officer on every team. Mm-hmm. So 
Britain and the United States are kind of sharing the officer load and the French have to have one on every team. So these guys are, they're a little bit older. <laughs> a lot of them, about ha- right. not, not that many have been in combat. It's interesting. Yeah. But a proportion of them have been in combat, but they still are older. They've been through the mill of life and yeah. they're not 18 year olds and they don't need the regimental sergeant major barking right. at them. And yeah. Knocking them at do- them for their shoe polish. Being yeah. Their shape. All right. Yeah. You know, when you, when you recruit men who think for themselves, you get men who think for themselves. <laughs> and so when, and so their impertinence, well, they get their first training commander fired. Essentially, it's not quite clear exactly what happens to the guy, but he, he doesn't know how to deal with all these guys, and and they figure out how to really make him look bad in front of a visiting distinguished visitor. And word gets back to London that those Milton Hall boys need a new commander because their current guy can't handle them. So then, then they get a new regiment who lets them kind of blow off steam, understands they're energetic, and appreciates the fact that they are recruited for their initiative. You don't want to stifle that or you blow the whole impetus behind the thought. Could you explain the Jedburgh marriage, <laughs> what a Jedburgh sure. marriage is? Because it's really yeah. important. Right. It is. You think about how teams are led and formed and how one might gel. They know they're going to be sending these guys off and they're going to have to work together. So the last thing you want to do is have some staff guy put teams together without an appreciation of how well they work together, right? If these these two guys hate one another and they're put on the same team, that's kind of a bad idea. So you give them the authority to pick their own teammates and then the officers then choose their radio man. And so how would they know who they want to work with? Well, they go out and exercise and they, and they have exercises not only to learn how to work the weapons and do the field work and tactical level stuff and manage their dynamite and this kind of stuff, but also to learn who they like to hang out with and who they can trust. And so after they've gone through several of these three or four day exercises, they're asked to get married. And they kind of sort themselves out among the officers. They, okay, I'm an American. I need to find a Frenchman. That's the only parameters, right? So they kind of gravitate toward one or the other. And and evidently that happened kind of naturally. It, it's not like, you know, in second grade where you're picking the basketball team and there's always one guy last, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, that didn't seem to happen. They just huh. kind of naturally gravitated toward one another. There was some jockeying, I think, among the radio men about who they wanted to work with. And I don't know that every radio man got the officers he wanted to go with, but in the end, the two officers would say, okay, we, we want that radio guy. Let's go through a couple of examples of Jedberg's in action. Sure. Dealer's choice. Okay. Well, the first team in is a team codenamed Hugh. It's led by a rather impertinent British officer by the name of William Crochet. Crochet had served in some odd circumstances in Africa. He was in a regular army unit. He gets into SOE. I saw his training report in the files at the British National Archives. He didn't He didn't pass his training reports very well. He had some pretty negative things written on his record. But nevertheless, for reasons that weren't really clear in his record, he gets to be the commander of the first team into, into France. Parachutes in, and just moments or hours before he's deployed in, he's told, you're going to go in alongside an SAS team. Okay. What's that? The Special Air Service, which is a group of about 40 guys with Jeeps and tons of dynamite and an objective to destroy. And as a Jedburg team, he's a liaison to find out who is the French resistance, who are the powers that be in that local area, who can they work with, and to start working with them in order to get them moving when Eisenhower says. But if you think about it for more than five seconds, you realize those are incompatible missions. And so when they picking themselves up from the drop zone in central France on June 6th. I should say all these guys go in like with the invasion for apparently for, oh, there's this, we could argue about that. that you spend a, Yeah, that's uh, a big uh, argument about big when argument they go about, in. But, but they, yeah. they go in very right on the heels of the invasion, perhaps because of security reasons, perhaps yeah, well, because of politics, it, who knows. Right. The politics and the security reasons mean only two teams will go in on that first day. They've got, you know, 90, 90, 90 some teams trained up, but only two teams go in on that first day. Hugh is one of them. There's another team that was to go in, but it's weathered out and it goes in, I think, two days later. But they pick themselves off the drop zone and the SAS commander and Team Hugh decide, you know what? Those guys back at home, they're crazy. <laughs> we need to split up. And so they do. They disobey orders and they go their own way because they want to fulfill the mission they've been trained to fulfill, not the one that they got, you know, 24 hours before the balloon went up. 
so to speak. Bull Basket, which is the SES team, that's the codename of the SES team, they wreak havoc across a wide swath of that province in France. The Germans hunt them down and destroy them. I mean, it's all over by, I think, by Ju- by the end of June, Bull Basket is completely killed or, or made prisoner. Team Hugh, on the other hand, operates, evades, conducts operations, lashes up with the French resistance. They're fortunate to find probably one of the more effective local French resistance leaders that was parachuted in several months by the SOE before then. And he's kind of got the politics of the area sorted out. So they wind up being a fairly effective team. In fact, they're a part of a series of events that in early August capture the largest formation of Germans traveling across France. It's a it's a German two-star general, Elster is his name. And he's kind of got a pickup team of Germans who've been told to leave France. And so he's traveling from the Atlantic coast across France in every vehicle he can find. He's stealing gas all along the way. He's got men riding donkeys and horses and on foot. He's got an amalgamation of anti-aircraft people and German police and port workers at the at the Bordeaux ports and so forth. And his orders are to get them back to Germany. He winds up surrendering when he's kind of surrounded by French resistance leaders who had been liaising with various Jedburgh teams all along the way. So that's probably the most spectacular accomplishment of the Jedburgh teams is their facilitation of the capture of 12,000 Germans in central France. And they're able to do that because they have reliable airlift supplies. When they when they meet with a resistance group and they say, okay, you got 50 guys, we'll get you a drop the day after tomorrow. And then the drop happens just like they said on the location, just where they said. Everybody gets their guns and ammo and the resistance in the area knows, hey, this Jedburgh team, they're pretty cool. So they've got the technical excellence, but they also then have Hugh, at least, finds outstanding resistance leaders with whom to liaise. Yep, exactly. When you can put those two mixes together, you'll have a winning team. Not every Jedburgh team gets those conditions, and there's various reasons for that. Another team I guess I'd like to talk about is Team Giles, which uh, is led by one of the more fascinating Jedbergs. He doesn't go into intelligence work after the war. He goes become a classics professor. Bernard Uh, Knox? Bernard Knox, yes. He's a... Cambridge graduate who's fought in the Spanish Civil War, then emigrated to the United States, and then goes, gets his, I think he's in Italy at, at some point, maybe after after France, and in a, yeah. a monastery, looks at all these old books and says, if I survive, I'm going to be, I'm going to teach classics. And exactly. goes on to be her of the Center for Hellenic Studies in Washington, D.C., I think. That's, yes. That's where it is. Uh, yeah. A long so, career in the classics, highly yeah. esteemed. I think he wins a pen prize for writing. I mean, the guy's no slouch, right? He's, yep. he's wrote the uh, introduction of Robert Fagel's translation of the Iliad. Yes. If you've got a copy yeah. of that, you've got Bernard Knox there. Right. And so, it's amazing to realize he had this whole entire separate previous life. Right, right. Yeah. He, uh, he gets uh, wounded and left for dead in Madrid in the, in the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. And he drags himself out of this little snowstorm in the battle. And then he winds up, because he, he has command of the French and German and a little Italian, he winds up in the OSS. Yeah, I mean, because it's a strange thing where you've got this left-wing Brit who ends up in the United States and then joins the OSS. You know, that was the one thing that was about Donovan. He didn't care about your politics. He's a pro-business <laughs> Republican who hires lots of commies. I mean, I mean, right there, wrong yeah. way. One of, his, yeah. one of his best aides was a descendant of Robert E. Lee, who was also a, a, a KGB spy. So- that's, that was a problem, but hmm, yeah. That's a story there I'm not aware of. Robert Duncan Lee, I think it was. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, Donovan's very utilitarian and very charismatic. And if you can kind of, if you're, if you want to get the job done, he really doesn't care about your politics, which is a failing in the long, in the long game. It's, it's, you know, and the OSS has been excoriated on many occasions because of Donovan's habit of, well, uh, or as, as Knox would say, Knox didn't refer to himself as a, as a communist, I don't think he wasn't a communist. I don't think he but was, he was by a that premature time. anti-fascist. That's what he says, <laughs> right? Yeah, he was. He was excoriated in a job interview at Yale, I think, for being a premature anti-fascist. And he he has this great essay about being a premature anti-fascist. Yeah. But anyway, that's a separate. Yes. That's an entirely separate yeah. conversation. So right. he gets. He's he his Giles does not go so well. Giles is a is a skinnier teeth survive. Boy, that twenty four hours was a near miss, and then the next twenty four hours is a near miss, and then the next forty eight hours is a near miss, and they they move from farm to farms, trying to stay one step ahead of probably one of the more well 
led counterinsurgency units in the German army in France at the time, the second Fallschirmjägers. I spoke to Knox in his living room in 2001, and he spoke about those guys with great trepidation. I mean, he didn't he didn't go on and on in detail, but he 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 respected their well, respect is not the right word. I think he was fearful to that day in 2001 in his living room of what the second parachute regiment did to people, and he didn't want to be caught in that. So did they do to people? If they thought. Your farm was the initiator of message traffic. They would just go in there and burn down your farm and shoot your family. The commander of that particular unit, I think, well, there's a brilliant study done by a German scholar who teaches at Oxford. So as as you might imagine, his English is pretty good. But the book is in German, unfortunately. I don't think it's been translated. But if you read German, you should read Peter Lieb's book about the German counterinsurgency in France and how much of the regimental commanders, company commanders, division commanders had fought in the Soviet Union or against the Soviet Union and learned their trade in the Eastern Front and weren't going to relearn how to do all that again. They were just going to start right at the PhD level of- Burn everything, kill everyone. Yeah. And move on from there. And move on from there. And so, in fact, Knox meets one of his good British friends, another Jedburgh team. They meet in a forest. They arrange kind of, okay, you have this area. I'll work drop zones over here. You work drop zones over there. You work with those guys. I'll work with these guys. And we kind of they kind of delineate a area of responsibility. And he laments in his message traffic or his, post, his post-war report, that was the last time I ever saw Colin. Because Colin's team gets wiped out. And Knox is very much realizing that hey, any any bad choice, which may sound like a good choice at the time, may prove to be the wrong one. And I think Knox, you know, if you read his writing deeply, uh, that introduction to Fagels and other things that he says just kind of about warfare. And then you know what happened to him in 37, 38, 39, and then 44 and 45. You realize, okay, there's a richness behind the text that a superficial skimming is not going to provide. But if you know Knox's own experiences, you it becomes it speaks volumes about what and, he says. And so Hugh had been dropped into central France, and where's Knox operating? Where's his team? Yeah, Br- sorry, Brittany? Knox is up in Brittany, northwest. But, yeah, but while his mission is a failure, you do note that. Brittany was overall, most teams that went to Brittany were successful. That was yeah, like, I, in I, fact, in fact, yeah. that might have given, that might have given certain people after the war, irrational exuberance about the, about Jedbergs by, by, <laughs> by, by, by how yes. well Brittany went. Right. I think you could look at central France and you could look at Brittany and say the Jedberg team was a great idea that, that had a great deal of success. And I wouldn't, I would say Knox's team was a success because they were in pretty good communication with headquarters. They managed the politics pretty well. But Knox, at one point, writes this long message back to headquarters about how you're asking me to do this impossible thing. You need to just, you know, go away. I mean, it's, it's a very impertinent message. It's wonderful to read, and I, I, I put it in full in the book, how, how sassy he is back to, <laughs> back to higher headquarters that a captain would talk to, you know, headquarters this way. So the third and final team. The third and final team is one that does not meet with such success. Team Jacob parachutes into a a chaos, and the conditions are completely different in eastern France where Team Jacob parachutes into. They're led by a British officer with a French officer as well, and then a British NCO. They go into the teeth of regular German forces who are bound and determined to, it kind of sounds ironic, but they are essentially fighting their way out of France. And they have no compunction about war crimes. And of course, they have, I don't know how they felt that they, they had all the arms and ammunition they needed. They probably did not. But they have tanks. They have heavy weapons, artillery. They can call in, if they're lucky, they might get an airstrike. They're functioning as a, as a conventional force functions. And a bunch of, say, 40 or 50 lightly armed French resistance, essentially not commanded, but kind of coordinated by a Jedberg team is not going to stand up against that kind of force. So was um, the idea for these teams dropped in this? I'm sorry. I mean, just make this turn that into a statement. Sure. The idea for these teams being dropped into Eastern France from the beginning had been that they would act as a blocking force for the German retreat into the Vosges, into Alsace and, and for the Rhine. They're going to stop that from happening somehow. Yeah. It's a great, 
kind of way to see the dynamic of the different parts of France to, to kind of follow what happens to these different Jedburgh teams geographically around the country. So Team Hugh goes into central France where there's not many French regular or German regular forces. There's not a great, they don't have a great capacity for air power um, to call in airstrikes and that kind of thing. So Team Hugh's probably got the best conditions for guerrilla warfare. Giles and uh, Bernard Knox's teams and the teams in Brittany have decent conditions. The politics of the French resistance isn't as strong there because the networks were all arrested just before the invasion, which capitates their the resistance's own command and control. And that leads to a kind of a pickup game of who's in charge, which is playing out while active combat is going on, which never works out very well. You know, In Eastern France, there's very good French resistance leadership. However, they have to deal with desperate regular German forces seeking to get home as quickly as possible. Which is one of the most powerful forces known to man, as I would imagine. Yes. Soldiers yeah. desperate to get home. Soldiers well desperate well to get soldiers home. desperate to get home. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and they've been ordered to do so by this time. They've been told, you know, hey, you're to withdraw to a line which runs roughly from the North Sea down through the Hurtgen Forest and so forth. So you're to withdraw to that line. And they're, of course, well, okay. We're happy to do that. And as long as the gas holds out, we're going, you know, and we're get, so it's a fighting withdrawal covering their way home. And Team Jacob is kind of in the midst of these German forces fighting their way through Jacob's area in eastern France and perfectly well equipped in order to handle, you know, little groups of French resistance that might attack a, a roadway or some vehicles along a, a road or something. So what happens? Uh, and, well, they parachute into a forest, thickly forested area. They get direction finded almost immediately with their radio because the German counterintelligence forces are pretty robust in that part of France as opposed to other parts of France. And so the German had set up a series of special networks of anti-commando forces because they, they immediately recognize, okay, we've got special, we've got allied special forces behind our lines. We need to wipe these guys up. We need to arrest them and dispatch those, those forces. I came across in the German army archives, the doctrine of what to do when this is going on behind your lines. You, you set up a German capacity for counter guerrilla activity and you ruthlessly conduct it. And they do. And so Jacob and one other team are completely destroyed by this desperate German army seeking to get home. Wrapping this up, what did Eisenhower get wrong in, in running his guerrillas? Sure. Eisenhower's going in assumption was that the French resistance wouldn't fight and he would have to instigate them into combat. That was completely wrong. And four days after D-Day, he has to have General Koenig send a message to them to tell him to knock it off. You know, we've got this other conventional war going on. And so you guys need to, to, to knock it off. Otherwise, you're going to shoot all your ammo off. We're not going to be able to supply you, and you're going to be destroyed. And he, he basically tells them all this on June 10th. And the networks that comply do better. Of course, some of them think, well, now it's game on, man. We're, we're frustrated. We've been occupied by two years by these guys or three in some, some parts of France. We're going to take our vengeance out. It's, it's our turn. And so there's a lot of people not following orders, which leads to a lot of chaos. What did he get right? Well, he got right the fact that that de Gaulle could be worked with. I think what he got wrong, another thing he got wrong was the delay with which Roosevelt would never really grant him authority to do so. De Gaulle goes to Washington in early July and has a meeting in the White House with Roosevelt. There's some media of this. There's kind of a big White House ceremony, and then they have a private conversation. And of course, Roosevelt doesn't live after the war to write his memoirs, but de Gaulle does. And it's very telling. De Gaulle in his memoir says... That Roosevelt painted a post-war picture illustrated by, you know, niceties and no longer having empires and all this kind of jazz. And he seemed to be completely unaware of the reality of European politics. That's essentially what de Gaulle says. And so de Gaulle leaves that meeting with Roosevelt feeling very, you know, these Americans, they really don't understand the reality of things. And he takes from that the fact he's going to have to set up a government. He's not going to, the Americans aren't going to recognize him. And the United States doesn't until October. What did the Germans actually think about the hmm. Jedbergs? Did the Germans think the Jedbergs had been 
yeah. uncomfortably successful because a lot of people, as you kind of intimated at the beginning or said explicitly, Stuart Alsop will mm-hmm. be an advisor to John F. Kennedy. And there's a lot of OSS veterans like Bernard Knox, but there are other ones and mm-hmm. every level of the, of the upper level of the establishment and all sorts of different things, academics, mm-hmm. uh, journalism. And there's, there's a mythos of unconventional exactly. warfare that comes out of this. Right. I'm not saying the myth yet, but there's a mythos. There's yeah. a mystique because it's secret yeah. too, which is always very sexy. Yeah. Uh, what did the Germans think at the time? Well, the Germans viewed it. In fact, there's a headline in the French Pariser Zeitung that I found in the German army archives. It was pretty entertaining. I think it was in the German army archives. I quoted in the book a little bit. They knew exactly what was happening to them. They knew teams were being parachuted in that were commando teams that were meant to provoke unconventional warfare guerrilla warfare. They call them terrorists and they know that they're allied because they're arresting some of these guys or they're tapping their communications. So they know that they're British and French and American and Dutch. They, they see that coming too. And so they understand what's happening to them. They're just unable to stop it all. And you think about allied capacity for war making at this time in the summer and fall of 1944 compared to German capacity for war making is just overwhelming the German system. And so it is ironic that low-grade guerrilla unconventional warfare still can have an overwhelming effect when you think about it kind of at the theater level. And it overwhelmed the Germans' capacity to to snuff out all these guys. They, I think they destroyed two or three of the teams physically. They killed kill two or three teams completely off. They disable many of them. Frankly, it's more of the weather, bad communication, and the politics back in Britain about not recognizing France that's disabling Koenig from actually managing his own headquarters. It's really sad to see how how the Roosevelt stubbornness, and in fact, that, that's the word I use in the book, the Roosevelt stubbornness disables the Jedburgh operational capacity because it takes so long to get the headquarters thing set up back at Chafe that... General Koenig is setting up his staff well into August. And so when you think about what does that mean for resupply missions, for setting up more teams, for follow-on forces, I mean, it just makes, it adds a level of complexity that stymied them. Despite the level of difficulty in putting together these teams, these three times 90, 270 different men of un- yeah. with very un- a very unusual set of skills, they, they're nonetheless, they're good value for money, is what you're saying. But they're not magic. And that's why I think they it began when some of them went off into the, a lot of them, basically the Green Berets are the Jedbergs. I mean, that's, yes. it's founded yes. by guys who were, who were in the OSS. Some of them were Jedbergs, you know, and they had an idea that what they were going to do is, is magical. Well, Kennedy when, thought so. Yeah. When the last baby boomer yeah. dies off, we might find, you know, that. And we get to look at the Vietnamese archives. We might yeah. be able to figure out that, yeah, the Green Berets well, and the Montagnards were highly effective, cost-effective. And I mean, that was the way we should have fought the entire war in Vietnam, if we should yes. have fought it all. You know, that's that's you raise a very good point, which I raised toward the end of the book, that the, the irony of it all is that General Singlob, who was at Jedburg in 1944, winds up being a full colonel in 1966 and 67 and commanding what is called Mac V. Sog in Vietnam, sending in largely Vietnamese teams into North Vietnam, he's realizing, and I spoke to General Singlob, he's the last American Jedburgh to have passed away. He passed away last year. I spoke to him several times. I had him come visit the Air Force Academy when I taught there. It's just a, a great speaker, super intellect, a very incisive mind. He quickly realized his North Vietnamese, his Vietnamese teams that were being parachuted into North Vietnam. So he was doing what he had done in World War II wasn't working because they were penetrated and his teams were being arrested immediately. And so he told me in his apartment in Alexandria, Virginia in 2001 and 2002, when I interviewed him, he said, I realized my best bet was to double turn them. In other words, (laughs) this is just a shell game. And we just, I just have to stay one step ahead of who's fooling who. And I just thought, this is amazing. So he winds up, he's, Quite a character, General Singlob makes major general, and Jimmy Carter fires him in the in the seventies for speaking to the press when he didn't have the authority to do so against Carter's policy about another issue. But Singlob's book is man, if you want a daring do book of Cold War 
really Cold War daring do intelligence and but special he, ops and politics. He at least, had, he at least had the intellect and the, yeah. I guess Grant would say the moral courage, because that was a phrase that Grant uses a lot in order, right. in order to yeah. forget what he had learned in the most, sort of the most, probably in, in many, despite his subsequent record, that was probably the most important event of his life, being a Jedberg. You know, oh, clearly. Yeah. And I think Bill Colby too, who, oh, yeah. who runs the CIA in the early 70s. Who also has, I mean, there's no shortage of moral courage with that guy, with Bill Colby, and uh, leads the Norso group on a commando raid in the north, into Norway. I think Colby, when I think about these the, these fellows, particularly the Americans, Colby and Knox and Singlob are kind of the most fascinating. They're a trio to come out of the Cold War that go down very different paths. You know, Singlob, <laughs> sure. Singlob stays in the military becomes a general officer. Colby goes into the agency when it's pretty brand new and winds up in this undercover career and then uh, winds up heading the CIA at a time when the CIA has become very controversial for a wide variety and, of things. And I mean, as in Vietnam, as a as a ambassador running the Phoenix program, I talk about yes. co- controversial. I mean, it yes. makes <laughs> even more controversial than Singlob. But at the same oh, time, yeah. Yeah. at the same time, he he gives away the family jewels and the during yeah. the, to the various Senate committees as far as lots of people like Probably like Singlob right. think he's given away too right. many secrets. Right. Yeah, you know, I don't recall Singlob ever saying anything bad about Bill Colby. You know, they were brothers Probably in not. arms, and that Probably would have not. been verboten. But yeah. uh, and then a guy like Bernard Knox, who understands the human condition to the ancient degree—if that's a word—I guess I just made that up, right? The nth degree of ancient understanding of what it is to be human. I just find Knox to be one of the more compelling guys I've ever met. And his range of experiences, his breadth as an intellectual, his leadership as an academic and so forth. It's just astonishing what, what that guy accomplished. And to know that he was fighting in Spain and then as a commando in the Second World War and then back in Italy as, as World War II ends. And to sit there in his living room and have him tell me stories in 2001 was just one of the more remarkable things in my life. Well, my guest has been Ben Jones. The book is Eisenhower's Guerrillas. The Jedbergs, the Maquis, and Liberation of France. And we say, Fred Bailey, rest in peace. Yes, in memory of all. Rest in peace, Fred. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 